Well, good morning. We're going to look at the book of Jonah this morning. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Jonah. Four chapters, four talks. So if you want to turn to the book of Jonah, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in chapter 3. Jonah's a tiny little book towards the end of the Old Testament. If you have your church Bibles, you'll be okay because you can find it on 775. It's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible if you are new to the Bible. Uh, our kids are also studying Jonah at the moment, so they're out in their kids' work at the moment, having a great time. They're on Jonah 2 this morning, so you parents can just stay that one step ahead. I'm sure you always are, and that should prompt some good discussion, hopefully, about what the life of Jonah means for you as parents, for you as a family. I hope you have some fruitful discussions as a result of what the kids are doing in their work. Let me pray whilst you're finding it, and then we'll get into Jonah 3. Lord God, I pray that you would continue to be with us this morning. I thank you so much, God, that you speak to us through your Bible as much today as you ever have done. And so, God, we uh, eagerly expect you to speak through your word this morning. I pray you'd help me to be clear, accurate. I pray you'd help us to have hearts that are ready to listen and to receive what you would say through your word to us this morning. Amen. Amen. So, Jonah chapter 3. Here we go. Then... The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay. I wonder whether you can remember a certain little moment in 1998. The little image is going to flash up behind me that might remind you. In 1998, some of you this will enthrall you, for some of this will alienate you, but I think for all of us, the man on the left, guess it, very good. The man on the left is a man known to all of us, I think, Mr. D. Beckham. And in 1998, England were playing Argentina, key game in the World Cup. I think it might have been nil-nil, one all at the time, can't quite remember. And then Beckham did the stupidest thing, do you remember? He was on the ground, lashed out of the Argentinian player next to him, got himself sent off. England lost the game and crashed out of the World Cup. Remember it? Some of you do. And Beckham, for ages afterwards, was vilified by the footballing world, vilified by the media and the press, and was a bit of an outcast, really, for a while. But, marvellously, in 2002, you might remember this little event as well, World Cup again. Same opposition, Argentina, scores nil-nil. Penalty gets uh, given to England. And who steps up but our friend David Beckham again. And the whole world pauses, having messed up so spectacularly last time. This is his chance for redemption, the classic media phrase. Chance to put all the the wrongs right. And sure enough, he bangs it in the back of the net. England win one-nil and they go through to the next round. It's a great story of second chances. 
It's a great story of a man who had a second chance to put things right that went so disastrously wrong. In 1998, he was vilified for his error, <coughs> excuse me, and things going so badly wrong. And yet, wonderfully, World Cup again, same opponents, and he's the one that gets to take the spot kick and puts England through, and his rehabilitation in the England footballing world is almost complete. <coughs> excuse me. I think... As human beings, first of all, we love stories of second chances. We love stories of people making the most of a second chance, of exploiting it, of bringing about victory where there was defeat, or or bringing about success where there was failure, putting right their own wrongs and doing it with a second chance. I think we love those kinds of stories. Beckham kind of became part of the folklore of the English nation shortly after that, having been vilified beforehand. Surely, as Christians, we, we would particularly love the concept of second chances, We are Christians, are we not? Because we have a God of second chances. That's why we're Christians. Because God didn't write us off in our rebellion. He came and rescued us, saved us, gave us a second chance to life. And day after day after day, we have new grace and new mercy. New second chances, if you like. Each day, each day, day in, day out. We have a God of second chances. That's the title of our message this morning. A God of second chances. And as we've seen in this chapter already, a God of second chances gave a second chance to Jonah. We'll look at that first of all. God gave a second chance to Nineveh. We'll look at that secondly. And wonderfully, God gives second chances to us. So, first of all, God gives second chances to Jonah. Listen, if you haven't met Jonah before, maybe you're new to this series or even new to the Bible, let me just catch you up. Jonah, in chapter 1, was given an instruction by God. He was given a very clear command in the 8th century BC to leave Israel and go to the Assyrian capital city, Nineveh, which is somewhere in modern-day Iraq. And he was told to bring a very stark message of warning and judgment to the Ninevites. You may remember that Jonah had absolutely no desire to go whatsoever. He had some degree of fear, I would imagine, about going into Nineveh, the heart of the Assyrian enemy empire. And also he had a lot of self-interest. He had no desire at all to see the enemy Assyrians get anything other than the judgment of God. He couldn't bear to think they might receive the forgiveness and the mercy of God. So he fled, didn't he? Jumped on a ship, went the opposite way, 500 miles west to Tarshish. But wonderfully, God didn't ignore him. God didn't just observe him. God intervenes. We have a God who steps in and intervenes into humanity. God pursued Jonah with a storm, rescued him with a massive fish who has just unceremoniously vomited Jonah up onto the beach. We think possibly somewhere back where he started, possibly near Joppa on the coast of Israel, ironically back where he started all those uh, days ago. So how does Jonah experience his second chance? How does he experience his second chance? Two ways. First of all, through the rescue. He experiences a second chance through a rescue. I want you to imagine Jonah lying on the beach. He's just been expunged, that's the right word, vomited up, frankly, by this very large fish onto a beach. So I'm guessing he's covered in fish vomit, whatever that looks like. I'm guessing, too, that he's covered in stomach acids from being in the fish for three days and three nights, the very historical fact that Jesus himself confirmed. So he's lying on the beach, covered in vomit, stomach acid, probably, we think, bleached completely white as a result of the stomach acids. He must have looked an extraordinary sight, But you know what? I bet he didn't care at all what he looked like or how much he stank. I'm imagining Jonah lying on the beach, gazing up at the sun, thinking, I'm alive! I'm alive! I've been rescued! I've been given a second chance at life. If you were here 
a couple of weeks ago, you'd remember me telling a story of how when I was six years old, uh, I'd been told by my dad not to go and swim in a certain part of the beach because it was dangerous. And sure enough, I did. And sure enough, I got into real trouble. And my dad had to do his best Baywatch impression and come running out and save me from drowning. And I remember vividly kind of being dropped vomited up, but dropped unceremoniously on the, on the beach, kind of spluttering and, and crying and thinking, I'm alive, I've been rescued. And that is our story as Christians, that our Father God didn't just leave us drowning in our own rebellion, didn't observe us going through the results of making ourselves the centre of our hearts and not him. He stepped in, he intervened, he dived in, rescued us and brought us back onto land and gave us life. So my first question this morning is, how many regular beach moments do you have? How many beach moments do you have? I know some of you love the sun. There's like a little glimpse of sun and you're running out there. But what I mean by a beach moment is, how often do you just lie back and revel in the grace that rescued you? How often do you take time to simply revel and glory and praise and experience the wonder of the reality of a God who did not observe you in your plight but rescued you from it? And it's brought you back to land and given you life. How many beach moments do you have a day or a week or a year? So Jonah has been wonderfully rescued by God. But surely that's it. So if I'm writing this story, this is kind of pretty much how it ends. Because Jonah now surely, he's been rescued, surely he should just slink home back to wherever he comes from in Israel, kind of tail between his legs, thinking, I've been rescued by the mercy of God, but obviously I've been decommissioned from my purpose in my role it couldn't have gone worse God said go that way I went that way he's not going to use me again as a prophet of his message so wonderful I've been rescued thank you God I'll just make my way home terrible to my legs having been decommissioned that's surely how the story in some ways should end and yet go back onto the beach as Jonah's lying there reveling in the grace that's rescued him what does God say verse 2 arise get up go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. I just find it remarkable. God still wants to use Jonah. And for the same mission. To bring transformation to the city of Nineveh. Jonah has been given a second chance. God is a God of second chances. He loves to use very, very imperfect people like you and I to achieve his magnificent purposes. God is a God of second chances. So the first way that God rescued, sorry, the first way that God gave Jonah a second chance was through the rescue. The second way is through a recommissioning. Through a recommissioning. Grace has not just rescued Jonah. Grace has recommissioned him. He's been given a second chance through grace. And this is the gospel of Jesus. We're not just rescued from death. The spiritual, eternal death of being separate from God. We're rescued to life. Rescued to an abundance of life. Life being friends with God and life partnering with him on his mission, as we heard this morning. Jonah is starting to learn what he's been rescued from and what he's been rescued to. Friendship with God, partnering with God as he seeks to transform cities. Notice something though. Jonah is still not perfect. Jonah is radically obedient. Yes, he goes to the heart of the Assyrian enemy empire into Nineveh, having encountered the grace of his rescue and his recommissioning. But he's not perfect. Don't ever wait till you're perfect to follow God's instructions to partner with him. I bet you Jonah is still scared. Nineveh. He's going to Nineveh, the heart of the enemy empire. 
They kill people like Jonah without a second's thought. Shame. Jonah is a failure at this point. He completely let God down. I wonder whether shame is still lurking. Self-interest. Jonah doesn't want to see the Ninevites spared. He wants to see them judged. They're the enemy Assyrian Empire. I bet there's all kinds of stuff Jonah's still working through. We see next week in chapter 4 just how much stuff he has to work through. He's so far from being perfect. But he is reveling in the grace that rescued him, the grace that recommissioned him, and so he goes. Don't ever, ever, ever wait till you've been entirely perfected before you revel in the grace that rescued you, revel in the grace that recommissioned you, and are radically obedient to whatever God's called you to. I don't know whether this story might help you, but um, when I was at university, uh, so this is back in 2001, it was my 21st birthday, so I was a Christian at university and, and passionate really about trying to help guys who were, had no interest in Jesus or in church see something of the truth of Jesus. But man, I had some, had some mess to carry with me. And uh, I was kind of living with six non-Christian guys. We were sort of very much part of the rugby, kind of cricketing, sporty culture, which is effectively the beer culture, is a, basically a euphemism for, for the other. And sure enough, on my 21st birthday, I was dragged, not particularly unwittingly, to the Isle of Wight, which is kind of, you can just jump on a ferry from Southampton, and it doesn't give me a much particular pleasure to say, but we just spent a whole day drinking, and you can imagine the state that we were in, kind of coming back on the ferry and then getting back on the bus. And I was so drunk, so drunk, horribly drunk. But just as though it wasn't enough to be that drunk, so to have just abused God's plans for alcohol, basically, I then started to try and preach the gospel. (laughs) So I would defy any of you in this room to find a worse example of evangelism than this. It was disaster. I was so drunk, really upset. There's something in me, so I felt to cry, but trying to explain to them that God loved them as well. Even now, I'm like physically cringing about it. It was just awful. And the next morning, I just woke up under shame. Oh, the shame. What kind of God have I just represented? What kind of gospel have I demonstrated to my friends? And to be honest with you, the shame of incidents like that, and frankly, numerous other ones, was a big reason for why I really kind of rejected God in my mid-twenties. Not a belief in him, but a desire to partner with him, be loved by him, submit to him. A key reason for that decision really was the shame of so many failed attempts. But some of you will know the story that through a kind of friend of mine who invited me kind of back to church and into his family, God began to kind of marvellously just dish out more grace. I think for me, I was kind of re-rescued, as it were, by God. Like a prodigal son brought back into friendship with God and the fatherhood of God. It was amazing. And then something even more ridiculous happened. I began to sense God recommissioning me began to sense God saying, I want you still, <laughs> you, to bring something of my gospel to those that don't yet know it. And you know what? Just last month, my friend Sam, who was on that bus in 2001, and I saw numerous other incidents like that, I was able to share something of the gospel with him, why I live where I live, because God's a God of compassion and love. God let me have a second chance with a guy who witnessed a total failure. And you know what? God didn't begrudgingly let me do that. He's so pleased to privilege me with partnering with him and proclaiming something of his gospel. God rescues us through grace. He recommissions us over and over and again through grace. You wake up daily to new mercies and new grace. Don't ever, ever wait until you're perfect before you begin to partner with the God of the universe in his mission to transform cities. 
So God is a God of second chances for Jonah, for us, and also, secondly, for Nineveh. God is a God of second chances for Nineveh. We've already said, haven't we, that the evil in Nineveh was just such that God was ready to judge that city. Nineveh, we know, was a place of kind of power and evil, which is a pretty potent combination. A couple of historians told me this week that Nineveh was known to rule with tyranny and violence. Another said that Nineveh was as wicked as it was impressive. The biblical prophet Nahum, who we see in the Old Testament, refers very succinctly to Nineveh as being the city of blood. This is a place facing the judgment of God, and appropriately so. But notice, God doesn't just wipe Nineveh out. could do. He's determined to warn them first. He's determined to offer them a second chance through the prophet whom he's offered a second chance. God is a God of second chances. And so you get this extraordinary moment. Just imagine what this was like. This 8th century BC enormous city of power and abhorrent evil. And this bearded, bleached white stinking of fish prophet arrives in the middle of their city and says he goes into the city. Doesn't stand outside the city walls or even on the city walls, he goes into the city. And he delivers a fairly blunt message. Verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Pretty, uh, pretty blunt stuff. And something extraordinary happens. They don't do what you'd expect them to do. Their favourite execution technique in Nineveh was to stick you in the ground, bury you up to your neck and let you fry to death in the midday Middle Eastern sun. They don't do that. They believe him. They are convinced of the truth of what Jonah predicts. They're mortified by their own evil and the judgement that awaits. They're brought to repentance and prayer and fasting, led by their own king. And then the entire city of some 120,000 people turns from evil to God. It's a mass revival. It's an extraordinary moment in history when God just transforms 120,000 hearts. Nineveh, like Jonah, gets a second chance. It's wonderful, isn't it, that as I prayed at the beginning, the Bible speaks into our lives today. It speaks right into our lives as Kingstonians in 21st century uh, England. But you might say, well, I understand that, but I'm, I'm, struggling to, I'm struggling to draw parallels between 8th century BC Nineveh and 21st century Kingston, or London, one of the boroughs in which we live. I can't really see that any parallels between us and this kind of mass-murdering, idol-worshipping, imperialist-advancing machine. And of course it is hard to see parallels. Kingston is a wonderful place to live. Or the borough of Kingston and beyond. These are wonderful places to live. Low crime rates, high unemployment, beautiful rivers and parks, good schools, I'm told, great shops. And London, one of the boroughs in which we live. It's of course a wonderful, wonderful place. Samuel Johnson, the famous 18th century writer, said this about London. He said, when a man is tired of London, he is tired of life. For there is in London all that life can afford. He's not wrong in many, in many ways. I was at an event last year with another Johnson, 
uh, Mr. Boris Johnson, who you can imagine was waxing lyrical about all the things that London has to offer. What a fantastic salesman he was that night as he talked about all the majestic, wonderful things that were, were in London, mainly due to his mayorship, it seems. And so, so much so that as I left, I was thinking, I really do. I live in the most wonderful place on earth. This is amazing. And he's not wrong in many ways. Economically, London is second only to New York for financial clout. We have a wonderful heritage in the arts, music, and theatre, and literature, and architecture, and art itself. London is famed for these things. It's like me, you like your sport, you can wander from the cricket at Lords to the football at Wembley, to the Olympic Stadium, to the tennis at Wimbledon, to the rugby at Twickenham. Amazing in London. It's a city of opportunity. Whatever your views on immigration are, 35% of London's population were born overseas. And for many of those people, London has been a place of opportunity, a place of advance, a place of freedom, of rescue perhaps. With regards to the church, the Financial Times of all places told me this week that the church in London, in stark contrast to most, much of Western civilization, is growing by 16% each year, in part due to the number of people coming from overseas. So what's the problem? Our city is fine. Come on, preacher man, even, even the church is growing. What's your problem? Surely, both Johnsons were right. There is in London all that life can afford. But I'm not sure that's the whole story, is it? And I think all of us know perhaps that's not the whole story. I think whether you're a Christian or not this morning, I think all of us would instinctively know that our city is far from perfect. If you dig hard enough, you will see that it's far from perfect. That other philosophical figure, Lily Allen, says, I think quite accurately, in her song, London, she says this, everything seems to look as it should, but I wonder what goes on behind doors. You might laugh, you might frown, walking around London town. When you look with your eyes, everything seems nice, but if you look twice, you can see it's all lies. I think she's onto something. I think what she's getting at is if you look beneath the shiny veneer of London, you will see that all is far from well. In fact, I think you will see that it's a city that is fractured, a city that is dislocated. Let me give you some examples. Just at the moment, the, the current stats say that 400 people a month are injured in knife attacks in London. 592,000 children live below the poverty line. The wealth gap between the richest and the poorest is enormous in London. 28% live below in poverty, which is more than anywhere else in our country. There are 2,200 brothels in London. 50% of the women working in there were trafficked from abroad. And I could, go, I could go on and on, giving perhaps examples of why Lily Allen is right. Even in our own leafy borough of Kingston, I think we know there is a sense of fracture as well. I'm sure a number of people, a number of you probably, are asking some of the questions that many are asking of our local political candidates at the moment as we lead up to the election. Questions such as, how am I ever going to afford to buy a house, given that there's so so few little affordable housing? How am I going to secure a school place for my child? Just this week, talking to somebody in this church for whom that is a very real issue. If you're a Cambridge estate resident like me, you're probably asking when will there be concerted attention and investment to bring the people on that estate out of deprivation. I think all of us know that our town, our city, has a degree of fracture and dislocation to it. Now, let's be clear. It would be wonderful, would it not? It is wonderful to play a part in some of these issues. 
For example, to help increase the educational opportunities in this very borough. That's why we're partnering with Chapel Street to open Kingston Community School in September. To try and genuinely meet an obvious, deeply felt need in our borough. Just yesterday I had a councillor knock on my door. I was able to, first of all, thank him just for the work these people do for our borough. And secondly, talk to him about these two issues. The issue of the Cambridge estate, of affordable housing, educational opportunities and so on. It would be wonderful, would it not, to see a reduction in London's crime and child poverty rate and the sexual exploitation of women. These would be wonderful things. And as we lead up to an election, can I encourage all of us to be thoughtfully and prayerfully engaged with the election. Consider the policies of the local candidates who want to stand for us, who I as far as I can see, are hard-working, good men and women who want the best for this borough. Consider their policies. Pray for them, as the Bible commands us to do. Take time to consider the impact of their and their party's policies upon this nation. What are the impacts of your votes, of their policies, maybe to do with the sanctity of human life made in the image of God? What are their policies there? What about the stewardship of financial and economic resources? What about the impact upon opportunities and care provided for the poor and the marginalised and the sick? And we could go on. I'm not here to give you an election manifesto. But if we love our borough, we love our city, we love our nation, and we respect and honour and pray for our government and our authorities, we're going to engage with this election. But all of that said, all of that said, so many of the issues that I've mentioned so far, especially the ones with regards to, to, to London, as it were, surely they're symptoms, aren't they? They're symptoms, they're they're surface needs, sometimes deeply felt needs, but they are symptoms, surely. I would argue this, that behind every uh, act of violence, every incident of exploitation, every unjust decision or policy made behind closed doors in a boardroom or a council, is a human heart in need of transformation. And I think whether it's the more obvious evil and chaos and violence of 8th century BC Nineveh or the more subtle but frankly no less broken city of 21st century London, its transformation of the human heart is what's required, is it not? What we need is for people to recognise the state of their heart and how far removed it is from its original purpose. It's become centred on self and not centred on God. We need people, we need to help people recognise that by centering it on ourselves, we basically end up denying ourselves the things that we crave, peace, fulfilment, the things that we were built to find in God. And so we need to help people understand that we end up living in a fractured, dislocated world, separate from God and lacking the things that our heart craves, peace, fulfilment, satisfaction. And then Jonah, Jonah enters a city like London, one horribly distorted by the brokenness of the human heart, and the message he sees, sees the city utterly transformed. And that's why the gospel is such good news. It offers second chances. It doesn't write off cities with broken hearts. It doesn't write off cities with hearts that are distorted and are worshipping and idolising the wrong thing. The gospel, God, is a God of second chances. Jonah goes into a city, again, into a city, and he gives a blunt, stark word of judgment. To be honest with you, there's part of me that wishes that the author of Jonah, or even Jonah himself, gave us a nice, holistic gospel message, full of grace and compassion and forgiveness and the love of God. He may have said some other things, I imagine he did, 
But what we read, what's reported, is a very, very stark warning. Hear me. To point our city towards the reality and the consequences of choosing our... To set, I'll start again. To point our city towards the consequences of centering our heart on self and not God, which is an eternal separation, an agonizing eternal separation from God. That is a loving thing to do. If you were to see a couple of lads just playing around on the train tracks at a level crossing and to hear the sound of a train in the distance, what would you do? The train is coming, is what you would say. That's what Jonah's doing. Judgment is coming. It's a warning. It's stark. It's the most loving thing to do. Are his motives love? I'm not sure they are, frankly. So we must make sure that it's a loving thing to do. Of course we're not the angry guy on the corner of the street just shouting angry hellfire and damnation. But a loving Christian will help his city see that there is an eternal prospect to be confronted. That is a loving thing to do. You need to consider what is coming. How can you help your city do that? Your town, your neighbourhood, your street, the mums at the school gates, the colleagues that you work with, the teammates that you play with, the family members that you've been praying for for so long. How can you lovingly help them see you need to consider your eternity. You need to consider what it means to keep your heart separate from God. And Nineveh does. Nineveh responds to this warning about its future. It responds extraordinarily. And they receive, what do they receive? They receive the mercy and the forgiveness of God. God relents and lavishes them with grace. If you haven't got the message this morning, God is a God of second chances. Nineveh has a wonderful second chance. King Church Kingston, we are commissioned and recommissioned and recommissioned and recommissioned as you've already sang and will sing again to show our city that there is a second chance. There's always a second chance with God. Because Jesus took the full force of the righteous punishment of God. That's why a second chance is ours. Because Jesus took the full force of God's judgment. God didn't turn a blind eye. He dealt with it in Jesus. Some of you will know Tim Keller, who's a church leader in New York. He says this, and this is what we want to try and help people understand. So listen to this. As a Christian, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. He's trying to help people understand that. Both bits. Outside of Christ, we are still more sinful than we could ever dare contemplate in the eyes of a holy God. And at the same time as that, you are more loved than you ever dared imagine. And we step into the love and affection of God. Grace continues. We're not just saved by grace, we're saved to grace. Second chances, third chances, 220 second chances. It's the nature of grace, day in, day out. So, as we conclude, we've seen that God is a God of second chances. For Jonah, for Nineveh, and I hope you've seen so far for us. But let me just give us three concluding points to make sure that we understand Second chances are for us. They're for Jonah, they're for Nineveh, and they're for us. As you consider how you're going to respond, let me give you three prompts that I hope will do so for you. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, I hope you know how welcome you are here with us. 
And my loving urge to you will be to consider, if nothing else, that Tim Keller quote. You are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine. And through Christ, you can be more loved and accepted than you could ever, ever dare hope. If you are a Christian, are you still living by grace? Are you still living in the good of God, being a God of second chances? If anyone here sat here thinking, I know that, but God is done with me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what last night involved, what this week involved, the state of my marriage, my family, my job. You don't know what I'm up to. God must be done with me. Hopefully, my salvation is secure, which of course it is in Christ. But you might be thinking that. But there's no way God would ever, ever recommission me. God loves to recommission rebels. He loves to help you live by grace day in, day out. Don't ever think there's nothing that will not allow you to receive the goodness and the grace and the restoration and the forgiveness of God. Some of you need to be recommissioned. Some of you have had some, like me, some tearful or failed or disastrous attempts to bring the gospel of grace to those around you. And God wants to recommission you this morning. He's built you like you're built for a reason. He's put you amongst the people you're with for a reason. He's made you like you are for a reason. And he's longing to partner with you. Not because he needs you, but because he loves to do so. And thirdly, as Christians, it's so important, as I already said, to have these beach moments where you revel in grace. But don't just stay there. There's a city to go to. There's a Nineveh to go to. Make sure you revel in the beach, but don't just stay on the beach. We're called to go. Jonah gets up and he goes. He takes a risk and he just faithfully says what God told him to say. And God looks after the rest. Revel in the beach, but don't stay on the beach. I wonder if I can invite the band up. We have some time to, to sing together. And we're going to sing that song that we, that we uh, sang just now. Which is God of this city. Let me just read some of the lyrics to you as Emma and Daryl begin to, begin to lead us. The song says, You're the king of these people. You're the lord of this nation. You are. You're the light in this darkness. You're the hope to the hopeless. You're the peace to the restless. You are. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. Do we stand? Let me pray and we'll sing. Lord God, we know that's true. There is none like you. Nothing and no one could have transformed Nineveh unless it was you doing extraordinary work, God. And we're amazed to think that you love to partner with really faulty people, with people that need rescuing and re-rescuing, with people that need commissioning and recommissioning. God, I'm just freshly amazed this week that you don't need us, but you love to partner with us. You will bring about change and transformation in the human hearts of our city. And you choose to use us as the means to do so. We are amazed by that, God. As we sing, I pray, Holy Spirit, where, where comfort is needed, you would bring comfort. I pray for anyone who even in their heart now is saying, I'm done, I'm done. Holy Spirit, the cross dealt with everything and everything. I pray you bring that to hearts right now. I pray for any of us who... If we're honest, we just like being on the beach. Would you give us the courage and the boldness and the radical obedience of Jonah to go?
And God, we pray for our town of Kingston and our city of London. We know that your heart breaks for the fracture that is in it, for the injustice that is rife, for the thousands and thousands and thousands of human hearts who are focusing their hearts on self, not on you. And whatever the temporary satisfaction and joy they might experience, it will never ever bring the peace and the fulfillment that you promise and the joyous eternity that you guarantee. We pray for our city, God. Break out. Use churches. Use those who love you and know you. Whatever our state, whatever our maturity, we give our lives and our hearts to you afresh this morning, God. And we say thank you so much that you count us worthy through Christ of partnering with you to see hearts and lives changed, churches growing, cities changing, the poor being rescued out of poverty and being brought into the riches of the glorious grace of heavenly inheritance. Do it, we pray, God, and we ask you, use us to do so. Amen.